book of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you look there, you will see that it is a familiar passage. It's a New Testament text. And uh, it's one that we've touched on before in this church. Because when you look at John chapter 4, you immediately go to meet with the woman at the well. And when you meet the woman at the well, most of you don't know where that is. Today we're going to go on the journey as we're going through Israel. Uh, I'm starting off the sermon text from, uh, well... I'm starting on this series that we're in is to look and to travel through Israel without going because some of you won't be able to join in the group. It's not too late for a few more of you to participate going to Israel January 4 through 14. But today I want to take you to a popular place. I want to take you to a place that is maybe the third most referenced place in Scripture. And you probably were going to say, what? Sychar? I want to explain it to you in just a few moments. But let us now reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given to us in the originals. I'll be looking at verses 7 through 30 in chapter 4. This is of John's gospel. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Verse 13. So Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up towards eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and have to come to draw water. And she's implying ever again at this place. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you are now, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 25. 
The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Here ends the reading of the scripture. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us the word of God. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, I pray that you might show us a similar heart as the one expressed by this lady. Oh Lord, I pray that you will make us not question anymore, but to exclaim, this is the Christ. In whose Jesus name, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, where did this all take place? Uh, if you're following along and doing this sermon, uh, in this sermon, we're going through the series, we're walking through the promised land, and uh, today, I mean, I wanted to be able to highlight where we've been. And I know the map's behind me, I know you're looking at it, but I wanted to, to, to think for a moment, when we started this month, this focus on prayer, we started by uh, taking the journey all the way over here, and it was back in this area, there was this tall mountain where prayer was, was given at the top of the mountain, and God sent fire down. Do you remember where that was? Mount Carmel. Okay, and there was a guy named Elijah who was a lot like us. He prayed, and it wouldn't rain, and then the Bible says in James that he prayed again, and it did rain. You see, prayers do get answered, and we, we learned that lesson way over there at Mount Carmel, which is close from the top of it, you can see the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the next week, I took you down over here towards Gilgal. It's a tiny little town that Joshua, when he crossed the Jordan River, we had all the chairs here for communion, we crossed through the Jordan River and set up shop there, and he established the covenantal terms at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal didn't exist before they came there. It was just open area. The nearest city was this little walled city named Jericho. And you know, in Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. But over here in Gilgal, it became important because God reinstituted the covenant with the people, and he went through it, and he said, you need to be circumcised if you haven't been, in other words, identified with God's people, like church membership today. Secondly, you need to have communion. In other words, you're going to take the Passover, and the timing was perfect and spectacular, and so all of the guys did this, even though it seemed pretty stupid, since they were going to go fight Jericho, and uh, if, if you'd know anything about circumcision, that's not what you usually do before you go off to battle, okay? So that happened in Gilgal, but also what happened in Gilgal was later on when the monarchy was started and you had, you had the, the King David, uh, not David, King Saul. King Saul loved Gilgal, but when he was at Gilgal, he, he was impatient. He didn't keep the terms of the covenant, and it was at Gilgal that he decided, I'm not going to wait for the clergyman. He's not doing it the way I wanted. I'm going to do it my way. And if you read 1 Samuel 15, you're going to hear how that was bad news for him. He didn't keep the covenant and God ripped the kingdom from him and he gave it to another, King David. That was what happened all at Gilgal. Now the next week we came and we went to the wilderness of Moen. 
And I know that that's a real exciting place for you. But it's a place where a lot of us end up because we struggle in this life. David, King David, was the one who takes us there. He was way down here by the Dead Sea. And uh, after he had been running from somebody else in the Christian community named Saul. Imagine that. Christians running from other Christians. Anyway, you have this scenario where David had the upper hand... But yet he said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And so he leaves in Gedi, which is right on the Dead Sea, and he goes back into the wilderness area, back into this plain or to this mountainous region uh, where they had a lot of sheep. And that's where he meets Abigail. Now, the story of Abigail, as I was trying to emphasize last week, is a story of how God shows mercy. And, and Abigail's husband was a fool. He didn't want to help David. He didn't want to come along. He was probably loyal to the king. And so you had this big conflict. And it almost turned into World War III. I guess they didn't have World War back then. So it was just turned into a major conflict. And Abigail, with wisdom, interceded. And she basically shows us the steps of forgiveness. And she showed us the gospel presentation. If you look at Abigail's message... And that's what we saw, how God extends mercy and how David was in the picture of Christ, being despised and rejected by Nabal, but yet he still is there following through. And Abigail shows the way that we are supposed to come to King Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Today, I want to take you not from way, way down south here. I, there's the Jordan River. I want, we're coming up north again. And as we come up north, that's the south side. As we come up north, we're going to find that you're, you might be familiar with some of the area down at the bottom, uh, which is where Jericho is, which is not far from where we were here. But when we're going to go inland, and we're going to find this little town right in between here. There's a dotted line that goes up and down. That's a major pathway up to Tirzah, and then you can come down here. But in that area, right around here, is where Jesus is in John chapter 4. Now you're going to say, so what? I want you to know that there is some significance. This area didn't just appear. Okay, God established it a long time ago. And if you followed, if you had your Bibles open and walked through, I want you to know that... Um, you might think that who was the first person that, that made his mark over here in this area of Sychar? If you listen to the woman at the well, she said her father, who was, who, what's the name of the well? Okay, so Jacob's well. So you know at least that Jacob uh, has, has been there before. But if you go back into Genesis 12, you're going to find that the first guy, one of the patriarchs that came by here, was this fellow named Abraham. Abraham had made the journey when he was coming all the way from way over here. He was traveling to a country that he didn't know because God called Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he came over to this promised land. And when he came in, it says in Genesis 12 that he got underneath a, a tree and rested right out here in this path area. Now, that's a significant thing. So, so Abraham was familiar with this turf. The next time you find out this area is that Abraham probably purchased something there because in Acts chapter 7, in, in Acts, excuse me, in Acts chapter uh, 2, when Peter gives a sermon on the mount, uh, not the sermon, when he gives a sermon at Pentecost, he explains it and he talks about how Abraham was there and taking care of things. You can read about that at the end of his sermon. But it's fascinating, he attributes it to Abraham, whereas in Genesis chapter, in the later chapters of Genesis, it attributes it to Jacob. Jacob actually brought this, bought this land Right down in that region, right over there, 
he purchased some land, and uh, Jacob was familiar with that turf because he got to bring his wife to be. You know, who, who did Jacob love? He loved his bride named Rachel. He got tricked out of her for the first seven years when he had to marry Leah and all that kind of stuff. But he loved Rachel. And when he finally got to get Rachel away from, her, from his in-laws, they moved out of there and they came to this area and that's where they parked for a little bit. And you know what was interesting? Rachel had brought some of this, this, the idols from her dad's house and that's where they buried them, right in this plain area. So Jacob was familiar with this turf. He... He had lots of thoughts about how he loved his wife and how he had to purify and all that kind of thing that went on there. Wow. Jacob ends up purchasing this land. And you know who Rachel's firstborn was? Her, his favorite son that had the coat of many colors? It was Joseph. Well, Joseph ends up inheriting this plot. And if you know the rest of the story, this is where Joseph's bones ends up getting buried after they went down to Egypt. Remember they pulled Joseph's bones and he came out of the Exodus? When they brought him back, this is where Joseph's bones were buried. All these stories. But the things that fascinate me the most is when Joseph's bones were being brought back up here... The people of God had just come through. They'd just gone through and taken Jericho and they'd taken Ai and all these things. And if you go into the passage in, in Joshua, you're going to find that Joshua said, oh, we have to go up to Shechem. We have to go up to that area and we have to renew the covenant. And they read the Ten Commandments again and they stood between this mountain. Yeah, if you look at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, you had... You had the people of God over here and the people of God over here. And apparently they didn't have microphones and stuff, but the, uh, they rehearsed the things that Moses had written. They had rehearsed the things that God had provided for the covenant people. The one stood on Mount Ebal, the other side stood on Mount Gerizim. All of this is what you could see when you're in that area, pretty close to where Jesus was visiting this girl. Now, this is pretty fascinating stuff. It's not by accident now, later on, when the kingdom split up and they had some troubles and all that kind of stuff, then guess what happened next? The, the, when Solomon died, his son was, was crowned king right over here in Shechem, in Sychar. Uh, so Rehoboam was crowned king. But remember, a civil war was brewing. And so what happens when you have civil war? More strife between the people of God. It's just a sad reoccurring theme. So the next thing you realize is that Rehoboam flees and he heads back to where his dad and his grandfather had set up the big church. Where was the big church set up? Okay, if in doubt, just say Jerusalem. Uh, because that's where it was. Uh, where Mount Calvary is, all those kind of things. So because David established Jerusalem and David set up the, the, the things ready and Solomon ended up building the temple and uh, all the majesty of it, everything was all cool down in Judah because that's where the big stuff was. It's like that was New York City. That was like Times Square. Now, when Rehoboam had to leave because of the Civil War, he ended up going south and staying down there in Jerusalem. But the replacement was a guy named Jeroboam, and Jeroboam didn't have the cool, fancy city to take his people to. You ever think about that? What do you do if you're left out? They got the great city, and you got leftovers. So, right down in here is where Jeroboam decided, we're going to set up a new replacement Jerusalem. And so he made some, some shrines and stuff, and there, so he set it from Dan and, and also down here in Bethel. Uh, it was right at this place that he decided, we're going to have something else. Bethel's only about 11 miles from there, and that's where they set up their alternative. But this became the Mecca 
for the northern kingdom. Samaria, as you guys know it. There's some interchangeable names. Uh, They're all pretty much, Sychar is just a quarter mile away from the mountain edge. Uh, Shechem is the guy who set up that that town. His last name, I guess, was Shechem, and he ended up having it named after him. But Samaria is the region. The the Samaritan is from that region between Jerusalem and the Judah, all the way up to the Galilee area. So that's all about the things that were going on in this area. Now, the issue before us is water. This whole discussion that is going on at the well that is up there has to do with water. Jesus is contrasting two things, and I think it's appropriate to bring us to the place of thanksgiving. Okay, first is to, is to journey there. Second is to, to listen, to visit. What's going on at Jacob's well? There's this woman who has come out of the little city, and she's standing there at this round area that was probably dug pretty deep, and that's where you could find water, something similar to what's pictured there. Jesus comes up at the midday when everybody's kind of thirsty, and he ends up explaining, well, he, does, he ends up having a great conversation about water. There's a contrast. Liquid water and living water. Liquid water and living water. Jesus is about to give her a gift of living water, and she doesn't know. It's fascinating how she has to begin to understand and receive it. This message has eight particular points, so if you're taking notice, they all start with an I, so you'll be able to see them and walk it right through. The first thing that I find about this living water is that it is inclusive. It is inclusive. In verse 9, Jesus makes an interesting point. He breaks down the barrier between uh, gender. He breaks down the barrier between uh, culture. He's, you know, the issue is Jews and Samaritans, they don't mix. And Jesus is coming to her and he says, look, what I have to offer, the gospel of the gospel is, is irrelevant about, about where your background is from, about how much pigmentation or how little you have. It is not about whether you're rich or poor or whether you have a great job or whether you don't have a great job. The gospel is inclusive. It is for all kinds of people. This living water is not coming from a fountain that you're banned from. Secondly, is individualistic. Jesus looks at her and he says, if you, if you would ask for it, you would get it. You see, it's very, it comes down to being personal. When you think about it, somebody else can't drink water for you. Can they? It's very individualistic. Third is in verse 11 through 12, you see the intrigue. This lady is puzzled by this, so she asks two questions. And if you're following along, you're going to see her intrigue increased because, as I said, in verses 11 and 12, she, she asks this question, Sir, how do you get this water? She looks at him and she says, You don't even have one of those buckets. You don't even have any kind of those uh, scoopers. What, what are you going to do to get this living water? You're basically a useless guy. You're awful to talk. She's intrigued, but she's like, it doesn't match up with reality. And secondly, she asks a question that will surprise you. She says, are you better than Jacob? Wow. She's already starting to get knocked, knocked around, and she's pushing back. She is, is saying, do you think you're special? See, that sometimes happens when you share the good news of Jesus Christ. Folks don't get it. 
There's an intrigue, but they're frustrated by it. And praise God when they actually do ask questions, even if there's zingers connected to it. Fourthly is the incentivized. It's, it's this water that's offered has an incentive in it. If you look at verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, if you drink this water, something good's going to happen. And I want to be able to tell you, if you embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, something's good going to happen to you. Now, what was the promise that Jesus gives? They're there by the well, and it's noon, and it's hot in Israel. They're thirsty. She's out there at the well. She had to walk up probably a half a mile to get out there to be able to get the water, to be able to go back to town. Okay, she's, do you think she's loving this? I mean... This may not apply if we had running water and we had spigots in our houses, you know. But back in those days, in order to get a fresh drink of water, you had to go out and get it. And he's offering her a water fountain that will never run dry, that she won't have to make a journey to. That's why I have this water bottle right by the cross. Living water. If you drink of the message of the gospel... You'll never have to find another gospel. You drink once and that's all that you'll ever need. He satisfies your soul. And when you think about that for a moment, what an incentive. And she still doesn't quite understand it with her limited faith. So verse 16 through 18 is the verse that we would like to skip over, wouldn't we? Verse 16, if you have it there, you'll notice. Jesus looks at her. After he's mentioned the incentive, now he goes invasive. Like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon, he starts cutting. Go and get your husband. Pastor, what do you mean? This is no big deal, right? No, you know the rest of the story. Why is this a big deal? Please feed back. Is it a big deal at all to you? I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ decided that of all the things he could have asked this lady, he could have asked her what color her eyes were. Who cares? Why is he asking her to bring the husband? Because he is beginning to expose her immoral life. He is beginning to expose that she's been leaning on her own understanding. She has been doing what's right in her own eyes. And she has established her own little worldview. And she is living according to it. And she is being faithful in her world and life view. And so Jesus does something that we all need to do when we share the gospel which is to tell people that your world and life view is inadequate. But how do you do it? He asks a question. Can you bring your husband? And she says, I can't. <laughs> because she was living in adultery. You know, her sexual endeavors had done that. And Jesus said, you're right. Thank you for being honest. I usually get into that pattern too. I really appreciate when people are being honest. But then Jesus took the next step, which, which we don't get to do. He says, you're right, because you've had five other men that you've been with. And the sixth one is the one that you're currently uh, not even married to. And so he sets the stage, and wow, she's, she's, she's exposed. Now, what do you do when you're exposed? If you're on the receiving end of this, you change the subject. You get off topic. And what topic does she move to? Now she starts talking about church. I don't like the music. I don't like how long it goes. I don't like, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? 
This is easy to get into a topic because everybody has opinions about that. And so she turns and says, oh, you must be some other religious guy. You're a prophet or something. You act like you know everything about everything. You're arrogant. You're puffed up. You seem to be one of those people, one of those prophet types. Wow. And then the next verse goes on to say that she, is, she looks at her surroundings. And this is why I want to be able to say, Jesus was invasive with his water, this living water, and then Jesus is interconnected with that water. Because now he's, con- the word interconnected, they're connecting back to the past. They're saying, we didn't get here by accident. And she says, hey, this whole worship stuff, this whole religious stuff, hey, I know about that. Our fathers used to worship here. In fact, she turns around and she sees that mountain over to the left and she says, that's where they, they set up shop. That's where they used to uh, repeat the, uh, uh, the, the covenantal terms. She knew the whole story, but did she believe it? No, she says, you got your church, I got mine. You understand what's going on? Jesus is connecting the dots and he's bringing the net in a little tighter. And after you deal with this interconnectedness where she's trying to deal with what she's seeing right around her, Jesus says, there's something better. It's not about location. It's not about whether it's at Mount Gerizim or whether it's in Mount Calvary. It is who you worship. And it's pretty neat because next he comes back and he says, you worship me. Wow. If you look at that verse there, this, this uh, what I call the intimacy of verse 26, that the Bible exposes, exposes something. Um, the woman has said to him, I know about this Messiah. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I am he. Have you ever heard of the I am you see it all throughout the Gospel of John, but you hear it that this is God saying, I am that I am. And she sees it. The intimacy of seeing Jesus. Her eyes are opened. She recognizes things. It's not just knowing about God anymore. Now she is seeing God. And when you understand the next part, in verses 28 to 29, you see some of the inspiration that arises out of this. Wow. It's a little bit difficult here because she just talked to Jesus. She just had the punchline. She sees it now, and now other people show up. What kind of people were these that showed up? Were they the bad crowd? No. If you think about this for a moment, who is showing up when Jesus finishes this this identification of himself, when he shows the intimacy to this woman that I am the Messiah? The disciples, the church people, they show up. And when the church people come in mass, guess what happens to the woman? She leaves. By the way, if you're a first-time churchcomer today, don't do what the woman just did. Although I'm going to tell you to do what she did in just a minute. But I just don't want you to leave because other church people show up and make you feel uncomfortable. Because why would you feel uncomfortable? Because it looks like you don't belong. Because look... The Bible says that they didn't ask the questions, but they had the questions in their mind. They weren't, they weren't looking at Jesus and saying, I wonder if he's the Christ. No, they were looking at her saying, I wonder why Jesus is talking to her. And you have this judgmental spirit among believers. How pitiful. 
So the lady doesn't say another thing. She takes off and she goes back to the town of Shechem, back to Sychar. She goes to where her place is and she starts telling everybody about this guy named Jesus. And before long, and it doesn't appear to be very long, is that she's got a crowd coming. And that's when Jesus tells his disciples, the church group, and he says, hey, stop looking down, stop worrying about the food. He says, look up. Get your eyes looking up. And in a sense, you could just hear him saying, guys, look back over. You can see Mount Gerizim. If I'm here, look at Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. He says, look up. Look at who's coming. Because there was a whole group of people coming from Sychar to meet Jesus. That the woman had said, come and meet this guy. Come and meet the Messiah. Now, make the application here. Is that there is a three-step maneuver in the woman's heart. And I'm praying that you will understand it and see it in your own life. The first thing when she's encountered with the living water, which she, she didn't have before, but when she came to get it, first thing she realized is that he is a prophet. And when you think about that for a moment, I wanted to make you thirsty. <coughs> I was hoping that it would make you thirsty instead of me cough. But when you think for a moment and say, she is beginning to realize he's somebody else. He's not like the same worldview I have. He must be a prophet. What's the next thing she says? If you look down in the passage, she says, I know about a Messiah. I know about something in this gospel presentation. I've heard it before because, you know, we've heard about the, the, that God came to visit his people in Jerusalem. She knew about some of those things. And most people, even today in America, have heard something about God. They use his name in vain all the time. They must know he exists. So there's this awareness of God. And there's this hope that somehow this God is going to do something good for you. And then thirdly, when she brings the people out, we find that she's she's recognizing he claims to be the one. If you watch those movies, you can see it in The Matrix. This is Neo. If you're watching it in The Lord of the Rings, this is Frodo. He's the one. This is the only begotten of the Father is in her midst. And he says, I have something for you. Drink ye of it and you'll never thirst. You see, if you have come to the cross and understand this living water, it's going to invade your world. But know that it is connected to all the other parts because God works it all together for good, Romans 8, 28. The question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? We're going to have an opportunity for you to stand up and say you know Christ, that you've been able to see God working in your life. You'll have something to be thankful for, for the living water that you drank of. I want you to be able to know that this little song that was written in 1940, not too long after the Depression here in the States, this man, Mr. Sykes, he wrote a hymn, Thank You, Lord, for Saving My Soul. He came from over in Scotland area. He used to be on a tram, and he ended up getting involved in something similar to the Salvation Army kind of thing. He ended up becoming an evangelist. But his message and song, thank you, Lord, for saving somebody else's soul, right? Has your soul been saved? Have you drunk from the living water? Our Heavenly Father, on this Thanksgiving day, I do pray that if there's someone here who has not drank, 